The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking investment insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. I'm shocked sometimes at the number of zeros that particular people might have invested in the place and know very little about it. The reality is it is an opaque system and diligence and things like that need to be focused on. But look, it's inescapable that it will be a prime investment destination for at least the next 10 to 15 years, if not well beyond that. That's Chris Johnson, president and CEO of China Strategies Group in Washington. Chris is one of the world's foremost experts on China. A former senior China analyst at the CIA, Chris has chronicled China's transformation over the last two decades and advised the US government on China's leadership and foreign security issues. Now with Joe Biden in the White House, we discuss how the new administration will approach China. Can we expect a more conciliatory relationship and an easing of trade tensions looking forward? And what will that mean for investors? Welcome to episode six of In The Know. We'll hear more from Chris shortly, as he shares his views on China's internal challenges, its enduring global drive, its contentious stance on Hong Kong and Taiwan, and the likely changes in the US-China relations under Biden, amongst other things. First, a welcome from Hamish Douglas, Magellan's chairman and CIO. Well, welcome back, everyone, for our first podcast of 2021. This is Magellan in the know. My name is Hamish Douglas. I'm Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Financial Group. I'm delighted today to welcome Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson uh, was introduced to us by someone that many people will know, Michael Morell, who was a former Deputy Director of the CIA. And when I asked Michael for somebody with deep China expertise, he immediately said, you have to speak to Chris. Chris was previously at the CIA, and Michael's own words, in his view, he was the best China analyst the CIA has had. So, Chris, welcome to our first podcast of 2021. Thank you, Amish. It's great to be here. Maybe we could start with just a little bit of a background on yourself. I've given a little bit away saying that you worked at the CIA, but how did you come about working at the CIA and what was your job there? Sure. Well, it's uh, as many stories uh, in life for people, I think, uh, in careers, a lot of it was happenstance. So (laughs) I was attending uh, graduate school in Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University, and there was a career fair there and the agency just happened to have a table. And so I left a resume with them. It had not necessarily been my life's ambition or anything like that. I thought probably I'd never hear from them again. And then a couple of weeks later, a mysterious, very large envelope showed up in my tiny student mailbox back then. <laughs> and it was the application form. And through a series of other uh, mysterious looking envelopes, I found my way into the building. But probably the most interesting thing was that I was actually doing mostly post-Soviet Union and Middle East things at the time. So when I was interviewed, I was quite surprised when they wanted me to speak to the China shop at the agency. I really knew nothing about China at the time. And it turns out what they were looking for was somebody to cover Chinese civil military relations, which was an area where I had done a lot of work, mainly in a Soviet and post-Soviet context. 
And so almost as a lark, I thought, well, let's try something new and try China. And I fell in love with it and I've been doing it ever since. In terms of what I did there, quite a variety of positions. I'd say my mainline position was as a desk analyst, the most senior China analyst there by the end of my career. But interspersed within that, I served overseas several times in various postings, all in Asia. And I also served a tour on what's called the President's Daily Brief staff. So that's the uh, intelligence newspaper, if you will, that the president gets every day, where my recipients were Colin Powell when he was Secretary of State, then Dr. Rice when she took over for him, and then I had President Bush for a short period of time as well. Well, it's really a bit like the movies, isn't it? Those brown paper envelopes <laughs> and, and so forth. Well, Chris, you know, we've had many interactions. We have a lot of discussions every month about there's a lot of information that you're sharing with us that's coming out of Washington, that's coming out of China. And we're in a very interesting point in time in history uh, with US-China relations, but also China's relationship with the world. China is forecast to overtake the United States as the largest economy in the world at the end of this decade, if you look at their growth rates versus the growth rates of the United States at the moment. And but many observers, particularly in the West, are pointing out China has incredibly high levels of debt. President Xi is following maybe inward economic policy, supporting state-owned enterprises. And people are arguing that really the outlook economically for China isn't as rosy as it would appear. You know, what is your thoughts on the outlook for Chinese growth in the sort of medium to longer term, maybe over the next five to 10 years? Well, personally, I agree with you. I think we are definitely at an inflection point on a number of fronts, uh, certainly in the U.S.-China relationship, as we've been watching unfold over four years of the Trump administration and now a new one coming in. Uh, certainly China's relations with the rest of the world, as you said, but I believe domestically as well. And a big piece of that is their economic focus. So I think really the way to frame it, Hamish, is to say that the leadership has made a very big bet that greater focus and attention on making this transition from what we might call the old dirty economy, you know, based on real estate and heavy industry and investment spending and so on, toward this sort of knowledge-based economy of the 21st century. And they're keen to not only participate in that space, but to try to own certain sections of it if they can, because they're well convinced, and rightly so, of the power of what we might call these platforms that the U.S. has dominated for so long. So that would be obviously integrated circuits, certain elements of biomedical and biopharma technology, seeing the layers of value, right, that are then layered upon those core platforms, if we can call them then, they see that as the pathway. So that's one point. I think the second point is they're betting very heavily on this new dual circulation strategy, right, where the main focus will be to put more energy into investing, into building the domestic economy, taking advantage, obviously, of the huge demand and scale of China's domestic economy, its continental size as a country and the like. So this is the path that the leadership has definitely decided to go down. I think there are a lot of people who are very skeptical because of the debt issues and so on. I'll just say that in my very long time watching this now, I've learned painfully a couple of times not to bet against them. And when I look at the logic of what they're doing, especially with the dual circulation strategy, it seems right to me for the development path they're on, for the challenges they now face in terms of how to think about the U.S. as a technology and other supplier it seems like the right path from my perspective. So I see no reason why they won't be able to grow at a relatively robust level for the foreseeable future. And, and obviously, and most importantly, 
in some ways, success begets growth, right? So the fact that they came out of 2020 as the only positive growth economy creates a lot of energy, right, for other investors and so on around the potential of that economy. And that helps bolster future growth in my mind. And we shared a paper the other day, Chris, and it was really from the Chinese side about the dual circulation strategy. It's a very interesting thought piece from China, really to keep growing their domestic economy and to make Western firms really dependent upon the Chinese consumption story. Do you think at the way capitalism works that the West can afford to turn away from China or do you think the market's just becoming so large that China can effectively tie Western capital into its economy with this strategy? Yeah, I think that's certainly their notion and plan. And I think probably the most revealing aspect of that was a speech that Xi Jinping gave in April, which has now been publicly released to the Commission of Financial and Economic Affairs, where he highlighted this notion that a key part of what they're calling the international circulation is making Chinese development of certain supply issues and technologies and so on integral to those Western businesses. So in other words, luring them in because of the power of the market, but also because of what China's doing in those spaces. And it was a very direct indication of how they're thinking about that. So I think internally, they believe they have good reason to believe that. And I don't see any reason to question that. The United States has never had an economic foe before. You know, the Soviet Union was an ideological foe and you were fighting proxy wars around the world. But economically and from a technological point of view, the US was always dominant and had no one near it. And that makes this sort of confrontation with China quite different. How much do you think the US and its allies can actually do to stop the economic rise of China? And how likely is that sort of strategy going to be successful or or are they going to have to pivot in some other form? Yeah, I think the latter is far more likely. I mean, I think it's fair to say that this is a challenge like none other the US has faced before in terms of the scale, the determination of the leadership in some of these areas the draw of the market and China's ability to, in their minds, and when we see things, for example, like a trade deal between Europe and China, you know, right before the new administration comes in, that only serves to reinforce their dialectical and Marxist mindset that it's the material forces, right, that matter and that will help them position themselves going forward. So my sense of it is a coalition is buildable, but it will be very difficult to build, you know, especially in light of this recent development. I think it's fair to say that the incoming administration probably isn't thrilled that the Europeans signed this trade deal. But at the same time, Europe is basically saying, well, you know, you got your phase one. Why shouldn't we have, you know, our equivalent for various industries in in Europe and so on? So it will be very challenging. I think there'll be certain specific areas. High technology is definitely going to be one of them where there can be a lot of cooperation to slow down China's progress, maybe in certain areas or at a minimum to be just very mindful about what they're doing with outbound investment and the like to build capabilities. And the Europeans primarily, I'm sure Japan as well, seem very eager to have that kind of discussion with the U.S., but some sort of broad COCOM type situation. I do not see that happening because of the power of China's market. Yeah, Chris, those comments are really interesting because when you kind of look at history, economics normally win at the end of the day. If you look at, you know, the US relationship with the Middle East, it's not like humanitarian goals and other goals kind of came out in the forefront. It was the economics of the oil supply. And I guess if China studies this and their economy is large enough, 
they can pick allies off purely economic with economic bribes here. Are people going to sacrifice their sort of economic well-being for ideological grounds of allies with the United States? Or do you think China, like they've just done, and the timing was very interesting just before the Biden administration, sort of picking off Europe? Yes. And I think that that was done largely for PR purposes, if you will, by the Chinese, much more so than the economic benefit they will derive anyway from that agreement was to be able to show you think these guys are just going to align with you, but they're in play and there's still strategic flexibility in the globe. That's one point. I think the chief challenge for China really is not so much dealing with efforts, whether it's a D10 or a G7 or you know whatever different coalitions that are being thought about to kind of push back on China's economic model and so on. It's really more does their system allow them to do two things, which I think are critical? The first, obviously, is to effectively break through the middle income trap. They're dead in the water and they know that if they're not able to do that. And the question is, can a state-led system like theirs manage that trick when so few countries have ever done so and a system similar to theirs has never done so? So I think that's obviously huge. The second piece is they struggle, I believe, and it's gotten worse, I'd argue, over the last year with phenomena like the wolf warrior diplomacy and the way they've treated different countries, your own included. Can they find a way to build international legitimacy without political opening? That's a real challenge for them as well. And they've tried to do it with things like Belt and Road and with peacekeeping forces and, you know, different bits of their version of soft power. But I think it's generally found to be wanting. And so to really be able to manage this, I think those are the two pieces of homework that they need to work on. Some of that is dependent upon how the rest of the world responds, but a lot of it is dependent on their own actions. Well, maybe we could move on because I think it's a nice transition there about what is the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP? What are the big picture goals here? And what is driving their domestic and then their sort of foreign policy here? Because President Xi has certainly stepped up and taken a much more aggressive, it's kind of not bide your time strategy anymore. And why do you think he's taking this sort of tougher stance, which is in conflict to some of these sort of soft power initiatives that you allude to, which would have been where they would have been a decade ago? Mm -hmm. I think there are several factors. I mean, one thing that's important to understand is that the debate over the longstanding foreign policy strategy you referenced, Deng Xiaoping's Biden hype, as it's often shortened, really started even before Xi Jinping arrived. There was a kind of flurry of this after the global financial crisis in 2008. At that time, Hu Jintao, the leader, and Dai Bianguo, his main foreign policy advisor, felt it's too early, effectively. We're not ready yet. We don't know the circumstances. The U.S. started to bounce back after 2008, and they just kind of put a kibosh on it. And then come around 2012, we had a leadership transition coming. So I think there was definitely an idea within the leadership, hey, we're not going to fundamentally remake foreign policy while this is going on, right? Xi Jinping, I think, had a very clear uh, view from the minute he arrived of having a sort of throatier presence internationally, or as he would put it, a mindset of, we have our challenges, but at the end of the day, we already are a great power and we should start acting like one internationally. I think if I could summarize his viewpoint, that would be it. And that was effectively encapsulated very early in his tenure 
when he had what's called a Centrally uh, Foreign Affairs Work Conference, which are always held to kind of put out the line of a new administration when it comes to foreign policy. And he certainly hinted at everything he's been doing since at that time. So my point is, this was set in stage early in the process. I think another part of it is they do truly believe that the international circumstances, if you will, are on their side so that their model is effective. It has managed to do certain things that help them build a narrative that while not particularly popular in the West right now, is very popular in the developing world, right? Delivering hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, these sort of things, I think, have been very, very attractive to Africa and other places. So that's part of the puzzle. I think the main piece as well is they just have a decision, which is that this is our time. We've got a narrow focused window in which we can complete this rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And if we don't do it now, we're going to miss the opportunity. And each day, their view is the circumstances are becoming more and more favorable. So we have now, just in the last week, very senior officials, acolytes of Xi Jinping, very publicly saying things like the East is rising, the West is declining, as if it's a a set (laughs) decision, if you will. And what do you think the actual objectives of the CCP are and you know it's obviously you've got China and the importance of China and China has been a great nation in history if you study history and how China was uh, formed and maybe its natural place is to be a great nation but then we've got the CCP as well what do you think the objectives of the CCP are? Well, I think it's kind of what we were discussing a moment ago, which is to create a nation that is wealthy and powerful without political liberalisation. That's really it. So obviously the number one goal all the time is keep the party in power. And the rest of it is somewhat ancillary to that. And so when we see things like disconnects, if you will, between what would make sense from getting along with everybody internationally point of view and some of their actions, let's look at the recent actions in Hong Kong, for example, with the national security law and a bunch of these other things. The domestic always comes first for them. In many ways, they don't really have foreign policy. Their foreign policy is an extension of their domestic policies. And when you look at it that way, it often makes some of their actions make more sense, if you will, if you look at it through those lenses. So I think that's a fundamental piece of it on that score. The CCP obviously would like to see themselves lead this period of rejuvenation of China. They definitely want to see that China return to its position of near hegemonic influence in East Asia. What role they seek globally is a little harder to tell. I think that's changing over time. You know, if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, does China have an ambition to, you know, float an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean or something? I'd say no. But now the direction of travel sort of seems more in that direction of a truly global player in all respects. We often, I think, give the Chinese too much credit, right, for seeing 50 years into the future and, you know, all of that. The reality is they have their own inbox that compels them every day and they're changing their goals and standards just like any other nation is as developments warrant. And Chris, just then you mentioned Hong Kong. And, you know, we read a lot in our press about Hong Kong and Taiwan and particularly about Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue at the moment and Pompeo on his way out, the Secretary of State of the United States, has just deemed genocide in relation to the Uyghur population. So we see our perspective of China's policies, but at the CIA, your job was always to see what is the perspective of the other side. So what is China's perspective? I'm not saying whether you agree or you disagree with China's perspective, but their policies and they're pursuing them firmly. Why are they pursuing these policies in relation to Hong Kong, Taiwan and Xinjiang, in spite of the international flack that they're getting on these issues? 
Just give us the other side of the story of why China is pursuing these policies. Let's start with Hong Kong, because I think in many ways, that's the one where what I'm about to say makes the most logical sense. Having looked at their policies toward Hong Kong for a long time as well, I find, and especially in the last year or two, uh, the only way to really understand it is through your CCP goggles, if you will. In other words, it doesn't make sense. It seems counterintuitive is the term that you hear a lot or running against their own interests. I think a main feature, there's a couple of things that are operative here. One, I think when Hong Kong first reverted in 1997, the Chinese thought, okay, that's great. Uh, Oh, we have no idea how to run this place or what to do with it. We certainly don't want to kill the goose that's been laying the golden eggs for us all this time and so on. So effectively, the leadership at the time made a deal with the tycoons in Hong Kong, right? Basically saying, you guys continue to largely run the show. We'll pull some strings from behind the scenes. And as long as we don't have issues with regard to sovereignty questions or, you know, the stuff that really matters to us, we'll just kind of follow that pathway. And I think previous leaders, certainly Jiang Zemin, and then also to a lesser degree, Hu Jintao, they had people on the ground in Hong Kong where when things would get troublesome, like in the early 2000s, when they tried to pass the national security legislation, and then they had 500,000 people on the street, right? And they weren't expecting that. When there was an instinct to take a more hardline approach in response to some of these things in Beijing, they had these people on the ground saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know, not the time, you don't want to be doing that, it's horrible for us internationally, and so on. I think Xi Jinping has come in with a very different view. First of all, I think he feels that Hong Kong is a spoiled child, right, that does not necessarily appreciate all of Beijing's beneficence. I think that's part of it. Two, he spent a lot of his career running Chinese coastal provinces that compete in various ways with Hong Kong. So I don't think he shares some of the view of Hong Kong's distinctiveness, if you will. In fact, my thought is that when we look at initiatives like the Greater Bay Area and so on, the goal is just to transform Hong Kong into another large Chinese city as opposed to some distinct or special place. I have been told that when his father was a vice premier early in the regime, he had the Hong Kong portfolio. And at that time, it was a hostile base, a foreign subversion. The British were trying to run people in and, you know, things like this. So perhaps he imbibed some of that around the coffee table. But I think the true factor is, hey, newsflash West, this is our territory. And it has been since 1997. And therefore, we're going to do there what we feel is appropriate in terms of safeguarding our interests. And I think that really is the fundamental reason behind their approach. Now, with Taiwan, of course, one of the things that approach does is it serves as a horrible advertising poster for one country, two systems. If you're sitting in Taiwan and your president's high, um, you get tremendous mileage with your voting base in Taiwan saying, if this is one country, two systems, we don't want it. And so you have to ask yourself, obviously, the Chinese are smart. They're well aware of that side effect. It doesn't seem to bother them enough. Let's put it that way for them to change their policy in Hong Kong. Part of that, I think, is, again, this dialectical materialist mindset, which is the power flows to where the economic power is, and Taiwan will inevitably be brought back into the fold in some way or another, despite the current challenges that they face there. But my sense is Xi Jinping in particular has his hands full with these other issues we were talking about earlier, you know, breaking through the middle income trap, so on and so on. They've made very clear, I think, in their exposition that between now and 2035, barring any independent style move from Taiwan, they don't have any interest in recapturing Taiwan. You know, what happens beyond that, I think things will get more interesting. 
On Xinjiang, I think the story is pretty simple. The leadership has convinced themselves that the Uyghurs are dangerous, that they are Islamic fundamentalists to a large degree, that the area out there needs to be pacified, whether it's via the range of policies that we see them executing, especially some of these internment camps and things like that, or just by their previous policy, which was to Hanize, if you will, the area by bringing a bunch of Han migration. I think this is an area with Xinjiang where their dialectical materialism lets them down. So in other words, their thought is often, I don't get this. We're making life better out there all the time. We've invested a lot in Xinjiang and so on. Why aren't they happy? The idea of a cultural and, and South for some and Xinjiang national identity that's separate from China just doesn't work. My own view is I don't really think that any amount of Western pressure is going to fundamentally change their attitude toward Xinjiang in particular, unfortunately. And Chris, do you think the Chinese would look at that and say, there's some hypocrisy here. This is a border security policy from our perspective. This is at the very Western borders. It's very ethnically diverse. We've actually had terrorism that's happened in the past. We don't have a harmonious society there. And this is our way of dealing with it. The United States can build border walls and can separate people at the borders. Australia detains people for years and years on islands for its border control policies. And this is just our form of border control. So the West can get over it because they do it themselves. And this is our version. And it's legitimate from our point of view, even though we look at it and say, how are these internment camps legitimate? Mm -hmm. They definitely have and do say all of those things (laughs) and um, have created a narrative for themselves. And I think there's an idea, certainly, this is another area where the domestic policy drives the foreign policy, right? So what matters is, does the public agree with the party's approach on this? And unfortunately, one of the issues is in Han Chinese, there is an underlying tone of, if not racism, definitely ethnicism uh, in that they believe they're superior. And so we often wonder, you know, how these things can be successful or how these policies can be conducted. The tragic fact is it's because a large portion of the civilian population agrees with what the government's doing. So at the end of the day, the leadership looks at that and sort of says, okay, on a Richter Payne scale of one to 10, what are these sanctions and different uh, things that the West has tried to do vis-a-vis Xinjiang to compel a change in behavior? How badly is it affecting us? And I would argue their assessment is on that Richter scale, it's about a two of 10. Well, that's way too low for them to feel the pain threshold is sufficient to get them to change policy. Thank you for that, Chris. Um, You had a new president inaugurated in the United States pretty important point in history. But from the Chinese perspective, maybe this is a very important point in history from their perspective, because there could be a change in tone, there could be a change in policy. So how do you think that the Biden administration will approach China? What might be different? And what might be the same from the Trump's policies? Yeah, I think what we're finding, at least initially, is that there will be probably more continuity than change in the following areas. One, the strong sense I get from the incoming team is that for those policies that were pursued under Trump that have basically been brought to fruition, so whether that's the existing tariffs or some of these executive orders or the various lists of companies, whether that's entities list from commerce or the Pentagon's Chinese military controlled companies list, If that has gone through the proper cycle and been signed off, you know, at the highest level of the administration, there's a reluctance to rescind those anytime in the near future. So I think that's part and parcel there. 
For those that were still in some form of cogitation or because of time requirements and so on had not been brought fully to fruition, I think there's an instinct perhaps not to follow through on that. I think the core distinction I would make between the two is that the incoming people, they have similar concerns about China and its behaviors, uh, certainly on the democracy front, influence operations, certainly its economic pattern and behavior, where I don't think they're as focused as the outgoing administration is this notion that this is a Soviet Union style competition, meaning that it's the political element. In other words, these guys are coming in to undermine our society, to undermine democracy. I don't get the sense that they have that existential feel. And so then I think, therefore, what that will translate into is more behind the scenes discussion rather than public discussion of these various issues, better coordination, more overall stability probably in the relationship. But I don't think we should make any assumptions about how quickly the incoming U.S. administration is going to want to start dialoguing with China, you know, on a lot of these issues. The reality is if there's a top 10 list for President Biden, items one through eight are coronavirus and getting that under control and the relevant economic impacts and so on. If there's any room on foreign policy, I think probably at the top of the agenda will be for them to think about what can or will they do with the Iran agreement, Jikpoa, and, you know, given Iran's recent behavior, that's all the more challenging. And then how do we respond to the Russia hack, which is obviously a huge issue. So I don't get the sense that there's a pressing desire to get back to say something like a strategic and economic dialogue with China anytime soon. One thing I think that will be interesting is that might be the assessment of the incoming team. Uh, Sometimes I think the U.S. policymakers have a tendency to forget China has a voice in all of this too, right? And of course, they're even more powerful and influential than they were last time members of this team were in office. And I don't mean this negatively. I don't mean that China's going to start acting out to get attention or something like North Korea would. It can be a positive gesture as well. And in fact, I'm told that there's uh, serious discussion at high levels whether some sort of an economic gesture of some kind that would be attractive could be put on the table. I mean, the reality is, if you think about the facts and the realities on the ground, the Chinese have much more leeway, if you will, in terms of making a concession or getting something going if they want to than the U.S. does. Politically, Biden's constrained and by all the other things that are going on in the United States. So arguably, it's up to China to make the first move. I think critical is going to be when President Xi and President Biden inevitably have that first phone call, which I would expect probably will happen sooner rather than later, if only in a sort of congratulatory context from President Xi, and what the tone of that call is and what agenda items they might like to put on the table, both sides. And the fact is they actually know each other or certainly have spent time together in their previous roles. Yes. And in fact, uh, President Biden, I believe, uh, feels pretty confident that he took a good measure of Xi Jinping at that time. I'm sure Putin has surpassed him now, but for a long time, Biden had spent the most time with Xi Jinping of any foreign leader. So I think certainly he feels that he's got some feel for him. I think my sense is he's definitely not unaware of what he's dealing with, you know, in terms of Xi Jinping's goals, desires and political acumen and cunning. And every sense that I get is that there's an awareness amongst the incoming team that perhaps more so than the outgoing team, that this is not a place that's brittle or about to collapse, or at least your assumption, if you want to build a strategy, should be to bet that he will stay around until he's ready to leave and that the party will not 
collapse anywhere during that process. That's a far sounder judgment-based case to be building your strategy on than hoping for um, collapse. It's very interesting what you've said, and I would agree with the thing that doesn't make sense for the US to backtrack on what the Trump administration has done, because that would be particularly weak. But also here is, it doesn't sound like you think they're going to escalate the situation or be as erratic doing things every second day and everybody wondering what's going on. It sounds like the Biden administration are going to hold on to all these goodies that have been secured by the Trump administration and only trade them when it makes sense in the relationship to do it. Would you say that that's right? But they're probably not going to escalate the situation. Right. No, I I think that's spot on. And I think it's in some ways it's a positive element having that sense of leverage. Right. If you will. In some other ways, I worry it, at least in some initial interactions, risks making the relationship worse or bumpier. Because one concern I have is that it strikes me that the two sides have mismatched expectations about who should be making concessions. Right. So the Biden administration clearly feels, as you just described, we're not going to give these things away unless we get something in exchange. China's view, of course, is that all of these actions were either inappropriate, illegal or illegitimate or all of the above. And so if you want to reset, quote unquote, the minimum you're going to have to do is get rid of most of that. Right. Um, And so I worry a little bit about that. I'm hopeful that in some early interactions, probably at a lower level, there'll be some realigning of those expectations. Right. So that that process doesn't happen straight out of the chute. And do you buy the climate change side of it? There's some rumours that they're going to invite John Kerry uh, to China pretty quickly. You know, is this somewhere where it's very strong on the Biden administration that he wants to be the climate change president? Do you think that is a point of areas where China could actually make a real difference on a global stage with other emerging markets, other economies, by putting pressure, joining with the United States and finding a joint policy on climate change. Do you think that is something that that would suit internal politics in China as well as something that they could genuinely reach out to the US on? I think this is one where many of the things the Chinese do, but that all countries do, their interest in climate change is largely their own interests. So when Xi Jinping made his announcement about carbon neutrality, Uh, Recently, a lot of people scoffed, given that they're also simultaneously building either domestically or somewhere around the world, a new coal fire power plant, you know, every eight days or (laughs) whatever the numbers are. But I think it's very serious. And what people, I think, fail to take into account is in this new political environment in China, you know, these aren't suggestions from a highly collective leadership where the locals or the ministers then just sort of say, well, that's nice, but I'm going to carry on with my business. You know, we've seen in several areas, whether it's the housing market with Xi Jinping's comment about houses are for living in rather than speculation and things like this, you know, this stuff tends to stick. So when he's made that commitment, that bureaucracy is going to feel not only a desire, but a, a must to respond, you know, and try to start creating policies that will make that at least look achievable if it's not. It'd be interesting to see. I'm somewhat concerned that the U.S.-China moment on climate has passed. I think maybe multilateral, you know, certainly has a chance, but I'm not sure I see a lot of U.S.-China discussion on it. Former Secretary Kerry, of course, is very keen, and he's made some public commentary along those lines about an eagerness to work with the Chinese on this topic. I think they'll be willing to listen. I think the risk is You have to make sure that you don't find yourself in kind of a traditional dilemma sometimes, which is you've got, you're enmeshed in a dialogue process, but it's not really producing any results. You know, you're just talking about talking. 
And so I think a clear-eyed view on that is definitely important. But I have no doubt in my mind that the incoming administration sees this as a definite area where we can do some work with them. And I think the Chinese will be open to it. I do think as well, our immediate approach to it will be to rejoin Paris. And then if China starts knocking on the door, as you suggest, for those kind of discussions, maybe say, mm, wait a minute, let's let's kind of have some multilateral effort here and, and frankly, get us back in the game because we haven't been around for a while on these discussions. Chris, maybe I could just turn to maybe some investment matters. Obviously, we talk about the geopolitics a lot, but we actually spend a lot of time talking to you about very specific investment risks that we're facing. We've spent a lot of time talking about whether Tencent and Alibaba were about to be put on the entity list. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that was a risk. Alibaba and the Ant Group is facing considerable pressure at the moment in China. Why do you think President Xi and the CCP are taking action against really Jack Ma, but also the Alibaba and Group. How much is this sort of antitrust and how much of it is really a political power play around controlling these major companies and these tycoons here? Well, I think that the discussion is very apt as uh, Mr. Ma finally reappeared. Uh, <laughs> so um, I think markets were relieved to see that. I mean, it was always my firm opinion that he would have a proof of life appearance at some point. I think to try to understand it and unpack it, it's a very complex situation. You know, I often find, and it's easy to do because you're looking for simplistic headlines and so on. China is a large and messy and complex place. And so it's almost never the case that narratives are polar. You know, in other words, well, it's all a political program against Jack Ma or it's all an anti-monopoly crusade. You know, I like to call it Xi Jinping's multi-layered cake of motivation. You know, there's usually several things going on. And I think that's the case here. What is indisputable in my mind is that Mr. Ma has made a couple of very serious errors in judgment over the last several years vis-a-vis how he publicly manages his relationship with the leadership. So the first example of that was really in the run-up to the last party Congress in 2017, which, you know, of course, Xi Jinping had already been in power for five years, but this was his crowning as effective paramount leader. So obviously it was very, very important. And for whatever reason, probably because of some pressure from longstanding investors in the family of a former leader, Mr. Ma thought it was a good idea to have a paper Alibaba Controls, the South China Morning Post, run a very negative article on the family members and their corruption of Xi Jinping's right-hand man, Li Jiangshu, who now heads the legislature in China. That was a big mistake. And even though it was up for a day and gone and all of that, he paid a price. And that was basically he was forced out of the company. Everyone likes to say, well, he decided it was time to retire and so on. That's nonsense. But he's very popular amongst the Chinese public and he's seen as something of an icon. So I think the party's very delicate, you know, about how they handle this situation. They certainly weren't going to lock him up for years and years and so on. However, most people in the system are lucky if they get one chance to cross the leadership like that and they're not sent away for the rest of their lives. You don't get two, no matter how popular you are with the public. And his statements at this forum in Shanghai, where almost literally he followed Wang Qishan, the vice president and a very powerful member of the leadership in speaking and basically saying everything that guy just said is crazy. You know, you don't get away with that inside their system. So when those comments took place, I was sure he was going to pay a heavy price. I certainly didn't know that they would postpone the uh, IPO of Ant straight off the bat as they did. 
But uh, it was very clear to me he was going to pay a heavy price. So there's no doubt that that political aspect is there and that the message obviously is to the other tycoons as well in the internet and in all spaces. You don't break ranks publicly with the leadership, no matter how right you think you are, or in fact, might be. I mean, you know, certainly many of the things he said about how things are handled in the fintech world in China were correct. What we saw then, of course, then was that political challenge for him gave a green light to several regulators, primarily PBOC, but I think also CBRC and some others, who said, okay, we've been wanting to rein these guys in, especially on the fintech side for a long time, state banks as well, right? Because they were feeling heavy, heavy pressure from uh, UAE Bao and you know these other platforms. And here's our chance. So let's get busy regulating. And I think it was pretty clear early on too, some, I think, uh, with some reason, suspected that it would just stay in the fintech space and you know be confined to Ant. That was shattered very quickly on Christmas Eve, where we saw the move on the e-commerce platforms as well. And that's only been followed up by comments by the minister in charge of market regulation and others since. So the bottom line, I think, is it's a mixture of all those factors. I think we're going to see a company in Alibaba that looks very different than it does today, probably by the end of this year. I expect this will continue this kind of sifting process, let's call it, for most of this year. But I don't think we're going to see a situation like Anbang or HA where you know the companies were effectively destroyed because Alibaba is just too central in too many ways in the Chinese economy. I do think probably Mr. Ma is finished in terms of any practical relevance, and we'll just have to see what happens from there. Do you think the Biden administration is going to be aggressive against Chinese companies? And particularly I'm thinking of these Chinese tech companies, not Huawei, which is obviously in a different situation. And I think many countries around the world have taken action against Huawei and their telecommunications networks. Do you think they're going to take action against the sort of broader Chinese sort of technology platforms? Or do you think he's going to be more limited to companies that are genuine national security threats. You know, the Trump administration was taking action against TikTok. Many other countries around the world were scratching their heads trying to work out what the national security threat of TikTok was. And of course, they were putting Tencent in Alibaba, which have very limited presence in the United States. If anything, it's a small e-commerce business and import business into the United States, Alibaba. Hard to really see the national security threat internally or domestically in the United States from that. But Huawei inserting itself into your telecommunications network, it's a little bit more obvious where that national security threat would be. How do you think the Biden administration is going to treat the sort of big tech space and will it distinguish between national security and maybe just companies they see as large and threatening economically? Yeah. Uh, for many, the uh, multi-gazillion dollar question, isn't it? I definitely agree. I don't get any sense that there's anyone in the incoming administration who sees TikTok as a uh, dagger pointed at the heart of America. I mean, this kind of comes back to our earlier commentary about the difference of view on that critical issue of political influence and to the degree that China is a malignant country that we have to worry about oozing into U.S. society, if you will. That's point one. Point two, I get at least the initial feel 
that the incoming folks are far less concerned about this issue of civil military fusion, right, which was a huge issue for the outgoing administration, both in terms of the Pentagon list of military controlled companies, but also things like cloud services provided by an Alibaba or a Tencent. Obviously, the People's Liberation Army uses those, you know, to some degree. So that's the math that would allow them to make that link. I don't get the sense that beyond maybe one or two people who've been quite public on the issue that are in coming into the administration have as sharp a concern there. So I think it just generally brings the fervor and the focus on those issues down a bit. As you said, Huawei is a specific case. I cannot see what's already been done there being unwound. I can see the space for maybe the more granting of licenses and things like that happening. I certainly think a company like SMIC which is way behind U.S. manufacturers of chips, will be of far less interest. But of course, they're already on the list. So will they undo that or not? Um, My guess is probably not, or at least not in the near term. You know, net-net, I think we'll see less energy primarily because these, let's call it ideological or analytic factors, ideological in terms of the the ideological war, if you will, between two sides, and B, this sort of focus on civil military fusion. I don't get the sense there's anyone in the Biden administration who doesn't realize the challenge with that. It is a real challenge, but I think they'll take a different approach. And daily ads to the entity list, I don't think is going to be a high priority. I mean, one thing that's interesting is that I think we need to see what the uh, new incoming Commerce Secretary's attitude is. That's going to be huge. That's the locus of energy there. Commerce has been a sleepy backwater for a really long time, but in the last four years, it hasn't been. And we only know a few things. One is that the nominee, the former governor of uh, Rhode Island, made some money in China when working in the private equity space. I'm also told, though, that her, her father was made redundant by the China model. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what tone she wants to set. Chris, I'm going to ask one sort of final question. It's really some advice for our listeners. You know, most of our listeners are very interested in investing. We at Magellan have been talking about the importance of China, the economic rise of China, the likely continued importance of China to the world's economy and as an investment sort of destination, just the power of what's happening over time. You've followed China for many years. I would argue that you're one of the foremost sort of Western experts on understanding China. You've had an incredible career. You've seen a lot of information. You understand the politics in China. You've looked at it as an analyst. What's the sort of most important piece of advice you could give to people who are thinking of investing in China, either today or in the future? How should they be thinking about the risks here? I'd come back as a sort of bumper sticker to my comment earlier, which is don't bet against them. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of growth and a lot of money to be made there. I think it depends a little bit whether you're a sort of you know, financial investor or a company thinking of investing in China. If you're a financial investor, why not? That's where a lot of the growth is going to be. I do think we need to protect our investors. We do need to do more work on issues like these accounting paper issues. And, you know, if we look at Luck and Coffee, for example, or, you know, some of these other examples, they're very, very uh, damaging. So there's work to be done. I think the Chinese are open to that, though. So I think that's something where we can make some progress. I think if you're a company investing in China, you have to think about a couple of things. One, you have to make an assessment. Am I making something that is unique? In other words, that China can't make itself. Or do I already have a peer or near peer competitor 
Chinese company to what I do, because you'll be treated very differently in the system, depending on how that works. Secondly, I think all companies, whether they have the special widget or not, need to think about it from the perspective of based on what we're seeing in terms of priorities for the 14 five-year plan and the like, you have to assume that the long game for China is to basically push you out of the market and replace you with domestic providers. But that doesn't mean you can't have a very good run you know, in the interim and that it's uh, not worth investing there. Also, I think folks need to understand that the investment climate is getting more challenging. You know, a lot of this national security regulation, national security law. Now we have the national security review process that's just been put in place and actuated. Data privacy law coming out. A lot of things that will just make it a little more headachey for business to operate there. But I think will also resolve some legitimate issues inside China's system on some of these elements of the Wild West growth of China and so on that need to be dealt with and curbed. So in a word, I'd say bullish for sure. And, you know, investors just need to be wise and aware of what they're investing in. I mean, I think that's something that's critical for all investors is that I'm shocked sometimes at the number of zeros that particular people might have invested in the place and know very little about it. The reality is it is an opaque system and diligence and things like that need to be focused on. But look, it's inescapable that it will be a prime investment destination for at least the next 10 to 15 years, if not well beyond that. Well, Chris, thank you so much. And thank you for all the time you spend with myself and our investment team. I think you said there are many people who are investing in China who know very little about it. We know very little about it as well, but we do tap people who know a lot about it. And you're right at the forefront of the people we first turn to, both about what's happening in Washington, but also what's happening in China. So thank you. Thank you very much. And also, please stay safe. I know you're in the United States, you know, I hope you get your vaccine shot soon, but, but, <laughs> but, but you're not in the over 80 category. You're going to have to wait a little while, but stay safe. And same to you and yours. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, always happy to be helpful however I can. Thank you, Chris. That was Hamish Douglas talking with Chris Johnson, President and CEO of China Strategies Group in Washington. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.